0: It's Wednesday, July 19th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Headline in Politico Looming indictment wrenches open the central question of 2024 is Trump fit to serve? I would say it answers that question. I would say it comes a lot closer to closing the door on that very vexing, hard-to-understand question than it does to merely opening the door to considering it. I mean, without the criminal indictment, I don't know, would we even be able to conceive of that question? Would our brains allow us to go there? Would we be able to ask, is he fit to serve absent an indictment, relying only on Trump's tenure words and other non-looming, but quite present indictments? privately, this is the subhead of the Politico article, privately, the fear is that a third indictment, even if it's the most serious one yet, will once again help Trump. So privately, but then they quote almost all the Republicans saying, yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't indict him. Not good. I wouldn't have done that. But indictment, you know, Politico reflects the conventional wisdom. It reports on the conventional wisdom. It also shapes the conventional wisdom. Sure, Trump's standing was not hurt by the first two indictments, his standing among Republicans in the polls. But why would the well-known actions that we all priced into the cost of Trump, why would that affect him? Why would pairing that with a novel prosecutorial theory as advanced by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, why would that hurt him? And as far as the document storage case, Would that be the sort of thing to shake the faith of a voter who excuses Trump so many worse acts, acts that go way beyond improper record keeping? But this indictment would be an indictment for January 6th. The insurrection, the riot, storming the Capitol, whatever you want to call it. And what Republicans want to call it is nothing. I mean, there is a subset that call it, you know, persecution or are proud of what happened, those patriots. But to many, many, most Republicans, it's an embarrassment. They might not tell pollsters it's an embarrassment. But if they have any Democratic friends, and if they do, they might live in a purple state that is actually in play in the election. If they do, they are a little ashamed. They didn't storm the Capitol, these people, most of Trump supporters. They didn't cheer on those who were storming the Capitol. They sidestep the issue. They're more willing to say, "Uh, yeah, let's change the subject than they are with, say, the Alvin Bragg indictment. They say, of the other indictments, come on, it's unfair. No one but Trump would get indicted for that. Or the documents, come on, that's a double standard. They might not be right, but they might say that. But they're not saying, you know, when John Edwards fomented his insurrection or, you know, when Hillary roused her proud girls to storm the Capitol. They're not that proud of it, I'm telling you. The Politico article does say that Chris Christie is going after Trump on this. He's a former prosecutor. Asa Hutchinson is also going after Trump as he hopes to become the first palindromic most powerful man in the world since Otto von Bismarck. But the other Republicans caution is the watchword quote their reticence underscores how hard they continue to believe it is to hit Trump without looking squishy to the base. DeSantis experienced that firsthand. Following his gentle criticism that Trump should have come out more forcefully on January 6th, the Florida governor was saddled by longtime Trump advisor Jason Miller with a derisive moniker, Ron DeCheney. Saddled? I don't know, maybe Jason Miller was running beside DeSantis in the paddock, vainly trying to strap something leather onto him, but it wasn't taking. I don't know if this somewhat hard-to-parse wordplay was a saddle. Generally, I'm going to give some free advice to the other Republicans running who don't know what to do with the fact that there's a looming indictment for Trump for fomenting an insurrection. Right now, you're reading the polls, other candidates, you're following the conventional wisdom as put forth by Politico, and that is you can't deviate from a very cautious, somewhat frightened playbook because you want a shot at bringing down Donald Trump who got to be the Republican front runner who dares not to be contravened because his relationship to conventional wisdom and the cautious playbook and the polls in general was what? Let's recall what his relationship was. Was he gingerly stepping? Was he issuing ambiguous statements? Or did this Voldemort of a Leviathan of a weather system of a political opponent get there by reading all the Politico subheads and saying, yeah, not gonna buy that. He insulted John McCain. He didn't vow to back the Republican candidate. He insulted veterans. He showed weak fealty to Reagan and antipathy to everyone named Bush. So I would say, cautious other Republicans, if you wanna come for the king, you can't behave like a serf. But also once you do become the king, please realize that's just a metaphor and do away with any of this storming the castle nonsense. On the show today, in the spiel, it's the economic term you never knew you needed and don't vibe session. But first, New York Times bestselling author, David Gran is back to talk about his tale of shipwreck and survival on The Wager. Today, the interview continues. We pivot to Gran's research for the book, what it taught him about the real nature of telling the truth, David Gran, up next... David Grant is author of Killers of the Flower Moon, Lost City of Z, and the book we're talking to him about, The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. In the first half of that interview yesterday, we discussed some details of the shipwreck, but... To me as a reader, what was fascinating is not just what the sailors did, but how society treated them afterward. England had a choice, how to discern the truth, how to seek and then how to define the truth of what happened. As I was reading the survival parts before we got to the adjudication part, I had a prediction. I predicted that society would make its decision based on one principle, and that is what best served society at the time. So I asked Grant, is that basically what happened? That's basically
1: what happens. I mean, what was really interesting to me about this story is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story, but it's really a story about the nature of stories and, and, and the way we tell stories and tell history. And so first you get it from an individual level. You get to see how, you know, Cheap and Bulkley and Byron and the others are each kind of shaping their own story to emerge as the hero. Now, to
0: event. interrupt, uh, Byron and Bulkley published books around the time, right? Y-
1: yes, when they come yes. back. But Byron, a fair amount of time after, Bulkley, right after, he gets gets back. Yes. Okay, so that, in terms of uh, owning the narrative oh, and PR, that And that's it was important. conscious. It was yeah. conscience. I mean, he basically, he's very savvy. Even when he's on the island... He is already trying to construct a story that will withstand the scrutiny of a court martial when he gets back and public scrutiny. So he is constructing this narrative, you know, even while he's starving,
0: he's got this little quill and and journal. And so, and then, yeah, he's even, and to further interrupt, sorry, but. He's even going as so far as to there is an incident where he has to kind of abandon some of his uh, shipmates there on a shore, and he's on a boat, and he sends provisions out to them, meager provisions, and maybe a couple guns, hope you live. But what else does he send? He sends a narrative such that if it may survive in any way, his narrative will propagate itself.
1: Uh, A hundred percent. And and there's another abandonment where the men form a document where they have the people being abandoned sign it so they're and I think they even use the word in the document my memory serves me like indemnification (laughs) so that like you can't if you make it back and you get to England don't come at us Um, and so they are constructing their story to serve their own self-interest and in their case many of them when they get back to England they're afraid they're going to get hanged so you know I love there's that line from Joan Didion who says we all tell ourselves stories in order to live but in their case it's you know it's quite literally true if they don't if they don't tell a good tale they're going to get they're gonna get hanged. So so you have it on that level. But then as you observe, there's a larger component of this because it's not just how individuals shape their stories, it's also how the empire is gonna shape the story. And it's listening to a lot of these individual stories going you know, do we like any of these stories? They kind of make us look like brutes, not like gentlemen. And it's kind of undercutting the central claim of the British empire that it's, you know, civilization was somehow superior to others. And and, and so they have an interest in in manufacturing and, and, and forming their own alternative history. Um, and so, you know, I was really interested in that theme partly after Killers of the Flower Moon, which was about this kind of, you know, great social injustice, kind of monstrous crime in the early 20th century where members of the Osage Nation were being targeted for their oil money and they're being right. systematically killed. And I was just always so struck afterwards. I was haunted is probably the better term by why outside the Osage Nation and, and you know, a limited number of people, most people in, the, in this country, you know, had never been taught this history. We had excised it from our memory. And it was only about a century ago. So like, why, how does that happen? And the weird thing about the wager is it's a way to illustrate this very carefully about how history is told, which stories prevail, the battles over stories. Um, So that, that
0: was something uh, that really interested me. Did you come to conclusions about, well, I know there are competing narratives and it's tempting or maybe impossible not to default to, you know, different people saw it in different ways. But did you come to any firm conclusions where you said this very much seems like a lie and it is my duty as the chronicler in the (laughs) 21st century to point this out? Yeah. So I think
1: um, what was what was pretty interesting is, I mean, I think the the empire will certainly tell certain a very mythic varnish version of the tale, which I try to point out. The um, individuals are kind of interesting because they tend to tell stories more the way we all do, which I found interesting is they they don't they tend to agree on the basic facts like if somebody was shot they acknowledge they shot the person who shot someone doesn't deny they shot someone right but the way they kind of shape their stories is they will like take certain facts in their narratives and they will highlight them and they will leave out other facts and they'll burnish parts of the story and kind of leave out other parts of the story and so the way i tried to highlight that was the way i alternated the perspectives and the most you know glaring example of this is you know a senior officer officer will say on recalling on the island that he suddenly says, I was forced to proceed to extremities, which sounds like something out of like bureaucratic Germany in World War II. Like, you know, I was forced to proceed to extremities. That's all he says. But then you can cut to the other account and John Byron. And he said, oh, yeah, he shot him right in the head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you, and it's through that you get that not only closer to the truth, you get to see the truth. You also get to see how they are shading their stories and manipulating the truth.
0: So do you think uh, you as a person who works in the world of nonfiction, do you think it's all Rashomon? No. I mean, there's like, there's this, uh, there's no such thing as objectivity and all it is is uh, either self-motivation or how we see the world or lived experience or no real truth.
1: No, it's interesting. Um, I don't, I, 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 I believe there is truth. Like when someone got shot on that Island, they were shot. They died. They bled out. When those people were abandoned, they were abandoned. They suffered. They starved. They committed cannibalism. The challenge is, um, as both a story or a historian or a reporter, is how do you get to the truth and how do you observe it? And I think that can be a fraught process. And it's worth. Acknowledging in the storytelling the fraughtness and the challenges and the doubts that can occur in trying to get to the truth But my goal is to get as close to the truth as
0: possible Do you think truth then is attainable when it comes to motivations even maybe historically lost or opaque motivations or motivations? So I mean so much of what we argue about isn't the truth of the thing It's the motivation of the thing
1: yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there is a subjectivity, there is an element. And, and I, I think, I guess it depends, you know, sometimes with history, there are parts of the story that are left out that are unattainable, you know, that can't be rescued, because there aren't the records. Uh, you know, with killers of the flower moon, there were, uh, I, there were so many members of the nations who were, who died under these mis, uh, suspicious circumstances, they were murdered. But there was no way to determine at this date, at least I couldn't, you know, who the killers were, because they were dead. The suspects were dead. Um, the witnesses were dead, and the conspirators had done such a good job in kind of making sure there was never a proper investigation at the time. There's no records to go back and even reanalyze. And so there are these awful moments when history can sometimes be erased. Um, And that's very haunting. I find that very haunting. Um, But I do think I do believe in the truth. I do believe that is the quest. And I do think that is what we try to obtain. And if, if anything, by showing the challenges and the fraughtness and the doubts, all I'm trying, at least I think or hope to do is to make us better and more adept at discerning the truth. Not to undercut the truth, but to give us a little bit more ability to recognize the manipulations and the distortions that people do. And, you know, so th- that that's my, you know, for better or worse, that's my
0: goal. <laughs> since, uh, since The Lost City of Z was made into a movie, since Killers of the Flower Moon was made into a movie, which will be uh, released in October... Um, there are so many scenes that are cinematic, that are dramatic, uh, before you ever wrote anything that was option for a movie, uh, a good writer will always write scenes. And since we think in terms of cinema, they will be able to say, or a reader will be able to say, Ooh, that is, and that's the word I'd use cinematic. But my question is about the interplay, knowing that a book like this could be turned into a movie. Do you embrace that? Try not to think about it, guard against the fact that there might be scenes that so uh, readily lend themselves to the cinematic? How does it affect your writing?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, you know, in recent years, I, I, the fir- the, well, the first and, and the most important is I don't. It, it's it's weird because even though I like cinema and I've had this very fortunate, privileged experience that people have come and been interested and talented people like, oh, this could be a movie. I am, you know, I'm such a person of words Yes, uh, and so all I'm thinking about in those scenes, I mean, I might be thinking, "Wow, this is great material," <laughs> or "Oh my gosh, I have these accounts." Like I, like on the wager, I thought to myself, "This is what I." This give you an example on the wager story. I thought they start to suffer from scurvy, and I think to myself, "You know, I knew scurvy. Have I ever read a forensic narrative?" really vivid account of what scurvy would do to a company on a ship and so i think that's my thought and then i think i've got the diaries and the journals to do this so i'm going to do my best to try to reconstruct a vivid uh scene and so that's the way i'm thinking and i suppose that is also cinematic like that the overlap is you are creating mental images but i don't really think about it um uh you know uh, yeah i i don't i mean because it to me it is still a
0: different medium the name of the book is and the name of the ship was the wager a tale of shipwreck mutiny and murder david gran number one new york times best-selling author <laughs> then and again thank you so much oh it's just my pleasure thank you i got one last question sure so was there was there ever really a spanish galleon filled with gold Oh, yes, there
1: was. (laughs) Oh, yes, there was. Which is crazy. That's one of the twists. It's like, you know, history gives you such surprising twists.
0: And now the spiel, the vibe session is over, Americans are starting to feel it. No, this is not a story about Lionel Hampton. I have to say that rather than starting to feel that a vibe session was over, I was just alerted to this concept of a vibe session in today's Washington Post, via that headline, writer Heather Long notes, quote, This summer could mark the ending of the Vibe Session, the term that has taken hold to explain why so many Americans give the economy a failing grade despite a half-century low in unemployment. Wait, it had taken hold? That term had taken hold? Beyond that headline? Well, it was mentioned one other time. One other original mention of the vibe session, and then a couple of references to that headline. It was in the New York Post, whereas Kyla Scanlon had a piece titled, The Vibes in the Economy are Weird, Really Weird. And in it, Scanlon writes, quote, There is no recession yet. Right now we were in a vibe session of sorts. A period of declining expectations that people are feeling based on both real-world worries and past experiences. At the time of that column, Scantlin was a 24-year-old financial writer who had a big substack following and an even bigger TikTok following in which she discusses macroeconomic concepts in the idiom of her generation and the medium. Here she is discussing bank yields on TikTok there's like
1: a whole thing about deposit betas and how consumers just don't move money because they're kind of like ah. but there shouldn't really be a world where treasuries which are US government debt are yielding more than what people are making on their savings accounts. it just doesn't make sense It's not quite one-to-one but banks should never be perceived as less risky than the US government and the yield situation right now kind of gives that vibe
0: again with the vibe saying vibes about things The vibes are off, or we're in a vibe shift. It's quite popular right now. It hints at a more solid concept. It's attractive to a generation that often doesn't like more than hinting at concepts. Putting their arms squarely around a statement seems to be anathema to them. If I may take my old guy, just say something, damn it. Vibe. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the vibe session, it was also a synonym for a familiar concept that sounds... Nah, less fun. That sounds, the familiar concept does, more formal. And that concept is sentiment. Everything in these headlines and in the analysis about vibes could just be replaced by talk of sentiment, and then you'd be discussing the economy in terms consistent with the ways people have discussed and understood the economy for years. In fact, in the Washington Post column introducing the fun, flirty, econ-fluid-seeming phrase vibe session it then immediately pivots to the phenomenon that we've always measured. Sentiment, quote, This summer could end up marking the end of the vibe session, the term that has taken hold to explain why so many Americans give the economy a failing grade despite a half-century low in unemployment. Sentiment is finally improving. The latest University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index just notched its largest gain since 2006. Morning Consult shows a steady uptick in sentiment since January. To be clear, both indicators remain well below pre-pandemic levels, but sentiment looks less like it did during the Great Recession and more like the early 2010s, a period known for slow growth. There's nothing wrong with introducing a term or a word that will actually communicate more meaningfully or appeal to a population that would maybe like to learn but is too put off by all the formality of technical terms. But sentiment? Is sentiment so bad? Do we gain much of anything by calling lagging sentiment a vibe session? Maybe. I mean, I don't know if I need it in a newspaper, but younger people, they don't touch the paper of the newspaper. They might see it online, get their news from TikTok, and you got to communicate in a way that people understand, I guess. But there is a little more of a downside to vibe session and words like it. There is a trend of inventing terms, but these terms describe trends that don't really exist. The terms are so fun, flirty, and fluid that no one, or at least the people, who bandy about the terms don't want to really examine them and say, oh, this thing that we're telling ourselves, this story that we're using to make meaning and guide us through life could be a work of fiction or, to put it more bluntly, a lie. There was the great resignation, which didn't actually happen. There was quiet quitting, which was theretofore known as working, but not very hard. And then I heard about this form of visiting Europe. They call it revenge tourism. Travel with a vengeance to get back at two years of pandemic. What? Okay, I guess if that American guy who graffitied the Roman Coliseum did it in solidarity with his Christian ancestors, eaten by lions, maybe. But also, that didn't happen. The lions, the Christians, and that wasn't why the American guy put his graffiti on the Coliseum. So I say stop, just stop. The economy, it is true, has gotten much more polarized, or at least the perception of the economy has gotten much more polarized along partisan lines. And there is out there in America general malaise, sometimes called doomerism, which is actually a useful phrase, which explains why actually improving conditions are not always or often seen as conditions that are improving. And that is captured in the concept of sentiment, which is turning around, sentiment is. And this is terribly important for all the talk of the trailing fact, or the vibrations of the universe being misaligned with the individual chakras of people. Take note of this, from April 21 to April 23, those two years, inflation was much higher than people's wages. People didn't just feel worse off, they definitely were worse off. They were falling behind, they could buy less. But as of May, workers' pay in the U.S. started to grow faster than inflation. So was this a vibe session? Or was that duh-analysis, meaning kind of a duh bit of analysis? I would say that people didn't feel better off when they weren't better off, and now that they are better off it's likely they'll start feeling better off. Of course, all of this, all of those trends could one day be undone by the lurking behemoths of mojoflation or the dreaded harshing of the National Mellow Reserve. We are waiting for the next jobs numbers to drop from the hype beasts over at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And of course, Jerome Powell will also be waiting in, guiding the economy, which can cause us to ask... 25 basis points. Is that so not even still a thing? And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca holds the roof, and raises the roof over here at Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Advertise AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Peru Jeeperu, Peru. and thanks for listening.